Hey, Trash Candy Tribe, welcome to another episode of Trashy Divorces. Trashy Divorces. Mr. Big Stuff this week. Oh, we got some good ones. Yeah, we do actually. They're both a little political, interestingly, but neither one is current American political. So there you go. Hey, we need to give everybody an update on Yardcat. Probably so. Would you like to update everybody on your new, Yard, new love of your life? Yardcat is doing very well, and we think we have settled on the name... Now introducing. Okay, because this cat <laughs> makes biscuits on inappropriate things like rocks and paving stones and stuff. Air. Air. This cat little is... little air biscuits are so cute. This cat we're naming Frida Biscatlo. That is correct. It may get longer. Free, well, Frida Biscuits. Mm-hmm. Frida Biscatlo. She's very pretty. She's very pretty. She's very sweet. Stay, stay tuned for a picture. We have not yet gotten her like to where we can take her to a vet, but we're 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 gradually working up to that it is a love affair in the backyard every day around this place i try to spend time you try to spend time we try so to make are, some time for our yard cat we are welcoming frida biscuits into <laughs> the world we love her yep hey what what happened on patreon this holy week holy cat it has been a hopping week on patreon you guys we are doing some amazing stuff over there this week trashy tidbits included royal scandal update with oh it William sure did oh you went you went down some rabbit holes on that. Uh, Chumley. Good Lord. That was some trash candy. What else? You when, did, you Wendy caught Williams. us up on Wendy Williams. Oh, my God. Wendy Williams is just getting screwed over, but she's going to come out stronger Dude, she's than amazing. ever. Fun yep. we've done this week. Anais Neen, yeah. Gora Vidal, yeah. Truman Capote, the book Answered Prayers, which connected to the two Mrs. Grenvilles by Dominic mm-hmm. Dunn mm-hmm. and the murder of Billy Woodward. Sure. By his adoring spouse, Anne. So if any of that sounds fun to you, you can join us over on Patreon. Like all of these other amazing people did this week. Stacy, who you got? I have Susie and Jed. Nicole and Linda and Teresa. Natalie, Starbucks 512 and Jessica. Whoa, Casey and Andy Candy Confections. You guys, I hope that you are finding... All of your joys and dreams on Patreon. We really are trying to put some fun stuff out there. If you just can't get enough trashy divorces, head on over. Thank you, everyone, for your support. Yep. Let's talk about our stories. Dude, our stories this week. Mr. Mr. Big Stuff. Fantastic little grooving song by Gene Knight. Who do you think you are? It's a, it's a fair question. It really fit our two trash piles yep. this week. I lead us off. We got a, a listener recommendation to check into uh, an Australian politician named Barnaby Joyce. And my God, is he a dumpster fire. Trash so pile. That was a lot of fun. This week, I covered the trashy divorce of John and Martha Mitchell. John Mitchell was Nixon's attorney general. And Martha Mitchell was his beautiful, adoring wife. Very who chatty. Had some thoughts once he uh, decided Very... to go down for... For Watergate. For Watergate. Yeah, for Nixon. Good stuff. I want to give a big shout out and thanks to one of our favorite Patreon peeps, Melanie. Your assistance and insight this week, tremendously valued. You get a Trashy Divorces halo. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. Now for our stories. We're going to sock it to you. Ha. (laughs) Let's do this. Yup. Stacy, Alicia. Hi. Hi. You have an international I trash do. pile of garbage this week. I do. We have such amazing listeners. And um, Kelly from Sydney emailed us 
some tips for some sizzlingly trashy dumpster fires from Down Under. Down Under. The one that jumped out at me is a guy named Barnaby Joyce, because of course his name is Barnaby, and so is our cat. Which is one of our cats. We hate that he shares a name with this loser. Even more fun is that this story is the the hashtag Barnababy scandal. We which call is, our cat that, which is what we specifically called him when he was very young. So oh, he's still a Barnababy. He's still a Barnababy. Um, our Bar- our Barnaby is named after Midsummer Murders detective Barnaby, not Barnaby Joyce. Let's just set that make that expectation clear for our audience. Sure. I had a lot to do with the naming of the cat. Please you did. continue I, with yeah, your story. I, I pretty much converted it instantly to Barney Stinson, but you know, whatever. So Barnaby Joyce is an Australian politician who was deputy prime minister through February 2018. When some of his life choices caught up to him in great trashy divorces style. And Kelly was so funny about this in her email, so I just could not resist. It's a magical country full of whimsically applied time zones. How could I not? (laughs) So like big caveat before I jump in is that one thing I learned in my research is Australia's system of government is very dissimilar to the United States. It has like certain things are this. It's a house. It's a Senate. But they work really differently. I'm going to get a lot of stuff wrong in here. I'm pretty sure. So that email address is trashydivorces at gmail.com for corrections. Sorry. Uh, sorry about me, Australian friends. <laughs> All right. On to our boy Barnaby Joyce. Uh, he sounds like a trash pile already. He's a 52-year-old blowhard of a politician from mm-hmm. the rural frontiers of New South Wales, which uh, is also where Sydney is, where okay. uh, Kelly lives. Great. Hi, Kelly. I would argue that Barnaby Jones is not terribly adept at long-term thinking. He comes from the relatively rural town of Tamworth. He was one of six kids raised on a sheep and cattle ranch. He went to the University of New England, which I think is also in a very rural area. Okay. Uh, That's on the border with the state of Queensland, which is where Brisbane is. Sure. Uh, At college, he meets his future wife, Natalie Aberfield. Oh, she sounds nice. (laughs) I mean... She, he certainly thought so because they got married in 1993. Uh, he worked as an accountant in Queensland. The couple started popping out kids a couple years later. They've got four daughters, 22, 20, 19, and 16. In other words, his children are certainly old enough to know what a homewrecker looks like. Oh, And he no. is one. Oh. Throughout his political career with Australia's Conservative National Party, he's been very happy to use this beautiful family like in his campaigns, in his campaign literature, and as props in his public statements about issues that he cares about. And for my take, is usually on the wrong side of, um, he's just always portrayed himself as a fighter for family values and traditional values and really sounds a lot like some other people we've talked about. He's that about. guy? He's that guy. He's that hypocrite? He's that hypocrite. And he uh, he has this sort of trademark, I forget the name of the hat, but it's a very Australian style hat that he frequently, he's a, he's a big dude, loves his- Big dude, big hat? Loves his big hat. Mr. Big Stuff. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Just he's just kind of gross. Who do you think you are? Okay, so you know this, all of these family things. That this fooled enough of the people enough of the time, but this all changed in February of 2018, when it was it came out that a former staffer of his, 
whom he had helped obtain high-paying jobs among other nationalist leaders' offices, was pregnant <gasps> by him. <gasps> well, maybe by him. What? Mm, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna okay. We're gonna back up. We're gonna get to the Barnababy scandal, but I want to kind of paint the portrait of the man first. It just breaks my heart when you say that because it. Our kitten. Okay. <laughs> <sighs> Hashtag Barnababy. I didn't Barnababy. even know that our cat was trending last year. <laughs> and yet, February 2018 is when we got this cat. It is. So, it's you true. know, the world is a funny place. <laughs> Full of coincidence. Yup. Okay. So, in Queensland, where he had his accounting, I, th- I think he opened his own firm at some okay. point, he decides to run for uh, the Australian Senate in Why 2005. Not? Why not? as, of course, the national on, on the National Party ticket. So the Nationals historically have been pretty focused on, like, rural farmer-rancher issues. Okay. Although with climate change, it seems like... So it's like they're pro-mining. They're pro-coal-fired power plants. They're pro, like, they're pro-environmental destruction. But this same region of Australia, which is always water-scarce, I guess, is... Sure. That's what climate change is really doing in the places that he represents making making a real impact right and so they're again it's the short-term long-term thinking like this guy just can i ask a quick question yeah how many political parties are there in australia i'm glad you asked um so australia has a bunch but there are two main parties okay and they're named weirdly by american standards the liberals are a center-right party Makes perfect sense, right? No. No. But anyway, the liberals are a center-right party. Okay. And labor is the other major party, which is center-left. Okay. That's not confusing at all. Not at all. And they're fairly evenly matched most of the time. I think typically what happens is one party holds the House, one party holds the Senate. Sure. It's divided government. So the the liberals and the national party, the national party is very small, but... I was about to say, where does his party fit into this? They are a coalition with the liberals, so it's the liberals. With the liberals who aren't liberals. The, right. The liberals. Because the labor are really the liberals in our thinking. Yes. Good the, Lord. Okay. Yes. The liberals are center right and the nationals, I think we would sort of picture them more like Tea Party-ish. Okay. Okay. Edge, like, like much more conservative. Perfect. Thank you. I don't know. I don't, th- it's not a perfect match because also like their ballots are, they use ranked voting. So you actually... Like the whole thing, it's a really different setup. It's a parliamentary system, so you can have these coalition governments, and you know, like there, the Greens hold four seats, the national in the Senate, the Nationals hold six. Like it's, but you can create influence. They have elections more often than we do. They okay. like they have a prime minister who's the leader of the leading party in the House. Thank you for the primer. Sure. I appreciate it. I just wanted to be able to set it in. Yeah. I'm sorry for the interruption, but I wanted to be able to set this in stage to like what's comparable. Right. And it's actually going to matter because um, Barnaby makes some interesting career choices uh, in his quest for power. Keep keep spilling the tea. Okay. Go, go, go. So 2005, he goes to the Senate from Queensland. There is a conservative government. John Howard's government, you may have, I remember him from the Bush years. Okay. Actually, that year, the conservative government took over both houses, the House and the Senate, which, again, I think is unusual in Australian politics. And so he was actually able to, like, really, really govern. Anyway, so along the lines of Newt Gingrich and Mitch McConnell, 
Barnaby seemed to feel that one of his jobs was to just buck normal order. So he would like... <laughs> Good tip. Yeah, like he's part of this coalition governing the country and he would constantly threaten to withhold his vote unless he got more of whatever he was seeking. So sometimes this was good, like he held out and got a rural assistance package alongside of like a big sale of a state-owned telecom. But it really just looks like he was running power plays all the time because he wanted to run power could. plays all the time. Yeah. <sighs> and then in a surprise move in 2008, he became leader of the National Party in oh, the Senate. God. And no one knew about this until after it happened. Like he apparently had some kind of coup. Whoa. And just like became the party leader in the Senate. And again, there are only a handful of national senators in the Senate, but still. So when you're already abusing your power, let's go ahead and put you in a position that's far more powerful. More powerful. Perfect idea. It's great. Yeah. So uh, in the Senate, uh, let's talk about some of his, 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 I'm, I'm air quoting here, policy positions. Oh God. Nonsense. Okay, so Gardasil is the vaccine for human papillomavirus, HPV. Uh, HPV causes cancer, right? Sure. Cancer, not good, not great. So pretty bad. In 06, Australia was like, hey, we should put Gardasil on our vaccination schedule, which would make it free to girls in Australia. And Joyce was against it. Joyce was like because he's cancer good. Cancer good. Pro cancer politics. What the very, hell? No, he of course he he said that the members of parliament should debate the social implications and of that, not getting cancer, <laughs> and that the so I guess the Therapeutic Goods Administration is, ha- handles medications, maybe sure. vaccinations at least. He said that the decision should not be left with that entity because quote. They'll talk about the therapeutic aspects. They're not there to talk about the psychological implications or the social implications. Of not getting cancer? Yeah. What does he think that... So he apparently thinks that if you give a kid a vaccination against cancer, that they're going to rush out and have sex. Oh, Jesus. And so he's like... This is his weird long-term thinking connected together plan exactly yeah so he he said that there might be backlash from parents who are like don't you dare put something out there that gives my 12 year old daughter a license to be promiscuous what i don't know i i don't not even i mean that's that is what republicans in the u.s also have effectively argued weird joyce of course the father of four daughters said that he would be personally very circumspect to provide a vaccine to girls who were too young to cope with the potential consequences of sexual activity. And you hope that at home... Uh, too young to cope with not getting with, cancer? Sure, with being cancer-free Jesus. later in life. So, But uses his kids as props. Total props. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you really hope that back home, Natalie is, like, talking to her daughters sure. and getting them vaccinated against cancer. I... <laughs> He is not a long-term thinker. Oh, God. Uh, also, this like weird need to control the sexuality of girls and women is typical worldwide. This guy's a gem. So let's talk about how the Gardasil thing worked out in Australia because I, okay, I happen to now, have that data. That's my next question. Tell me. So yeah, despite Joyce's pro-cancer advocacy, <laughs> um, Gardasil was added to the national vaccine schedule for girls in 2007. And for boys in 2013, boys oh, boys fantastic. can also get HPV-related cancers. Okay. 
So as of 2017. Did, I'm sorry, did Barnaby Joyce come out and say we can't give it to boys either because it may not make a them peep when the boys got added to the little, list. A little curious about what? that. Boys won't get throat cancer. I'm against it. I mean, come on. Anyway, so uh, as of 2017, so, you know, a decade into this experiment, Australia has reported a 17% drop in precancerous lesions in women oh, wow. aged 25 to 29 compared to pregardisol days. These are women that Those Barnaby Joyce was going to throw away. Those are results. Because he is a short-term thinker. All right. So he's not a piece of trash yet, but he's pretty close. Oh, I can't. This is this is pretty trashy. Okay. So another fun fact about the government of Australia. Okay. The prime minister, I think there was one time when the prime minister was selected from the Senate, but by custom, the prime minister is the leader of the majority party in the House of Representatives. So Barnaby's a senator. So he can't he can't become prime minister or deputy prime minister as okay. the junior coalition partner. So when the 2013 elections roll around, Barnaby's like, I just took over the nationals in the Senate. I'm see what I can do in the House. So oh my God. not only does he hop to the House of Representatives, but he moves down a state into New South Wales. And so he's one of the very few Australian politicians who has been in both houses and represented two states. House of Cards. Uh. So yeah, he's got his sights set on leadership, and like, but he's a he's a crank. He's clearly good at it. Oh yeah, yeah, and and he he's just a loudmouth crank. He told in like I don't know twenty eleven or something. He told a reporter that the country was going to hawk to our eyeballs to people overseas, and said that they were going to threaten. Said that they were going to default on their debt. Like economists, like the, the he's a he's a crackpot. He's a crank. He's just. So He's, let's give him a position of power. No shit. Like, smart people scorned him for these comments, but but he got elected. So on gay marriage. Oh, goody. Mm, yeah. <laughs> At an anti-gay marriage rally in 2011, Barnaby told the rally, really bizarrely, that uh, his four daughters would oh, be geez, affected what? if same-sex <laughs> marriage was allowed. I'm sorry. Wait. And an anti-gay rally is going to prop up his four daughters and say what about them? He's going to say, we know that the best protection for those girls is that they get themselves into a secure relationship with a loving husband. And I want that to happen for them. I don't want any legislator to take that right away from me. Barnaby Joyce seems to believe that if gay marriage is legalized, it will outlaw straight marriage. And that his daughters will be forced into same-sex marriages against their wills. One of these things is not like the other. A little bit of a crackpot. Uh, in 2015, he said that gay marriage would affect Australia's cattle exports. Oh, my God. It's real bad. What? Real bad for the beef industry. What? He says where we live economically is Southeast Asia. That's where our cattle go. Okay. When we go there, there are judgments, whether you like it or not, that are made about us. And they don't like gay cattle? They see us as decadent. So he said that he viewed marriage as a process that's inherently there for the support of or the prospect of or the opportunity of children. I think that every child has a right, absolute right, to know her or his mother and father and also should be given the greatest opportunity to know their biological mother and father. And he apparently thinks this is very important for the first 15 or 20 years of a person's life. But after that, you can just jump ship to the next one. He is a pillar of morality humility and weird logic chains but wow anyway all right this i think this episode 
This episode features Yorkshire Terriers, and I think you'll love it. What? Um, I titled this part, Twilight of the Trash Bags, or The Time Barnaby Joyce Threatened to Kill Johnny Depp's Dogs. Excuse me? (laughs) Hold on, wait, 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 there's a lot packed in here. Johnny Depp has Yorkies? What are their names? Um, Their names are um, Pistol and Boo. Pistol and Boo sound like great Yorkies. How does Barnaby Joyce... Threaten, who threatens a Yorkshire Terrier? Okay, uh, let me tell you the story because it's got everything. Oh my God. In 2015, noted trash bag Johnny Depp flew oh. into Australia to film a Pirates of the Caribbean sequel. Sure. Along with his then wife, Amber Heard. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, I feel bad for her. No, Pre- pretty really... sure we're going to be covering that one. Yeah, that's a future trashy divorce. Okay, they brought along their two Yorkshire Terriers. Because you do. Because they're little five-pound little, little angels. They're five-pound fluffs of love. Little fluffs of love. So it appears that the Depp Herd people had not gotten the right permits to certify that the dogs were vaccinated and healthy. Oh, there may no. be a quarantine thing required. Because sure. Australia, like, legitimately has... Takes that shit seriously. They do. And they should. Uh, like, Australia has almost no rabies. They're mites that affect mm-hmm. beehives that help cause colony collapse. Australia doesn't have those. And they take that shit seriously. I can appreciate that. As can I. Yes. Unfortunately, Barnaby Joyce had moved to the House of Representatives and had become the agriculture minister. Oh, God. Let's just say that Barnaby oh, no. Joyce lost his fucking mind about Over two these Yorkshire two floofs Yorkshire floofs of love. Who, like, meanwhile, like, when they arrived in Australia, oh. I guess the, the Depp Herd family was like, oh, they need grooming. So, like, they take him to groom, like... And there are all these little pictures of these floofs oh, with their Australian oh, groomers. Oh, no. And they're so... Anyway. Uh, so Barnaby Joyce issues the following ultimatum to to the press. To I the mean, press? not to the press. Doesn't handle it like, hey, we need these. No. It would have been a phone call. He's a grandstanding piece of shit. And he... Okay, so he's like, Mr. Depp has to either take his dogs back to California or we are going to have to euthanize them. What? He's now got about 50 hours left to remove the (gasps) dogs. It's time that Pistol and Boo buggered off back to the United States. He can put them on the same chartered jet he flew out on to fly them back out of our nation. Oh my god, I would punch him in the face. I mean, someone ought to. Who yells at... Yorkshire Terriers. Okay, now the reason... You need to be a big Mr. Big Stuff and yell at Tiny Tiny Pistol and Boo? Because that makes you feel more powerful? Yeah. Fuck off, He's a trash bag. But here is how Johnny Depp makes himself more of a trash bag in this story. Okay. (laughs) Um, Suddenly, though it's been widely reported that these are Johnny Depp's dogs, they're Amber Heard's dogs. Uh... And there are criminal charges that Amber Heard is forced to deal with in court. You are joking. She negotiates a, a plea agreement that she pleads guilty to one count of falsifying an immigration document. Oh, my God. Like they had to, they had to make a video. The two, like part of their court agreement. Heard, yeah, the they, PSA. Had to, they had to make a, a yes. Don't um, do drugs, kids. This has been described as a bizarre hostage video. Oh my god! Basically saying like declare everything and don't bring animals to Australia. Just basically, your Yorkshire Terriers are not welcome here. Yeah, no kidding. Ugh. Bugger off back to California or in we'll your private kill plane. Them. Okay, or so we'll kill them. Amusingly. Trashbag Johnny Depp later described Barnaby Joyce as looking like a person inbred with a tomato, which is not that far off. 
I mean, he may um, be trash bag, but he does have a way with words. Yeah, and and really, given what we now know about the Depp Heard marriage, like it it, this, just seems like an unimaginably cruel event in the life of Amber Heard. Well, yeah, kick your wife over to let her suffer the fallout. Seriously, for your two dirty dogs that yeah. you couldn't get into the groomer before you went to Australia for a three month stint. Yeah, sure. it's just horrible. Around this time, can we go ahead and just give Johnny Depp like five trash cans in advance? Let's do that. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Done. yeah. From That's what the I, from what I know, divorce we've ever done. Yeah, from what's been reported on that story, <laughs> he's earned them. Okay, around this time, Joyce became the leader of the National Party in the House. The previous one retired, which makes him Deputy Prime Minister. Perfect of the nation of Australia. But again, next incident. Uh, oh, no. This one is actually called Wacky Australian Self Crippling Laws: The Parliamentary Eligibility Crisis of 2017 and 2018. Ooh, sounds good. This is just trivia, but Barnaby Barnaby Joyce was swept up in it. Ooh. So the Australian Constitution, Section 44I says that parliamentarians, people elected to the House or Senate, may not have any allegiance to a foreign power, especially citizenship. And so the court has held over the years that dual citizens have to take proactive steps to renounce their citizenship in the second country before they can run for office. So I guess there was a lawyer in Perth who a couple of sitting politicians had like he was pissed off at them. So he contact and they were New Zealand born. So he contacts New Zealand gets into their records, finds that only one of these two politicians had renounced their citizenship with New Zealand, so not eligible to be in government. So this forces that politician has to resign. Then it's like it set off a firestorm of suspicions because there are plenty of foreign-born parliamentarians who have renounced. So everybody's like pulling out their documentation that they've renounced and others are like, calling their parents or i don't know the british embassy or whoever you need to call because there are a lot of countries in the world apparently if your parent is born there you have dual citizenship as as a birthright of your parent but like you could have dual citizenship and not even know right scotland the uk dual citizenship (laughs) dual citizenship it kind of worked out that way for these people though so there are people are resigning their seats in droves because I think genuinely most of them didn't realize. You don't know. That, yeah. Yeah. The government is referring cases to the high court, which sits as the court of disputed returns. And ultimately, for like a year, this there are people resigning. There are people oh saying, God. actually, I'm going to just wait until the court hears my thing and they'll tell me what to do because like I didn't know this. And, you know, I've taken steps to, re- you know, like the right. whole thing. It's like 15 people end up losing their seats crikey including barnaby joyce oh my god his dad is a kiwi i think and so yeah he technically the the government of new zealand reached out to him and was like you're probably also a dual citizen sorry so great he's out of power done no because you have to just take a step to renounce i think you just send a letter to you know whatever office handles birth cert- I don't know I don't know there's there are things you do to renounce your citizenship he does this most of the other people who resign do this too and they just run for office again so he's uh, only out of office from like late October to early December because he wins his seat back oh god like and apparently you- his vote total went up <laughs> yikes <laughs> okay so yeah they have they have these by-elections we'd call them special elections and 
I don't know, seven out of eight of the people who ran for their seats won, something like that. It was just a little tempest in a teapot dome is what I wrote. (laughs) Okay. So that's a thing. And that that was like consuming Australian politics in 2017 and 2018. And that actually will factor into the Barna Baby scandal. Oh, no. (laughs) Okay. Barnaby Joyce doesn't like trans people and doesn't think that they deserve any protection from discrimination. Cool. I'm shocked by this. Cool, dude. I know. I know. You didn't see that one coming. Um, and on the environment, Barnaby is a climate change skeptic. He wants more coal-fired power plants. But he's literally from a land that is drying out because of climate change. Yep. It also looks like when he was ag minister, he uh, maybe swindled taxpayers out of 80 million dollars or so in a in a dodgy water deal uh which which charmingly they're calling watergate (laughs) and that's happening now i don't know how that's gonna be but like it was the water was priced at double coincidences are everywhere yeah the water was priced at double the market rates and the company that profited from this was the energy minister who was also of the National Party, a good buddy of Joyce, like whatever. Don't know. I'm sure that'll work itself out. So he's grifty. Grifter's going to grift. Grifter's going to grift. Bottomless bad faith. Ignoring the overwhelming challenge of our time, climate change. Perfect. Pretty standard Great. conservative politician in the Western world. Get it. Right. All right. I know this guy. Now I've let's, seen his type. Now let's talk about all the ways he's a trash bag in his personal life. Ooh. As noted, Barnaby married his wife, Natalie, in 1993. Sure. They went on to have four daughters. Also, as noted, he's always used his family as campaign props and his caricatures and his nonsensical arguments about letting people he doesn't like live freely and in peace. And then, because he's the quintessential Australian country bloke, he started an affair with a staffer whom he ended up getting pregnant and metaphorically blew up his own family. Wow. Wah, Like, Okay, so based on the Daily Mail's timeline of events, this is probably what happened. So there was an election in 2016 in Australia, not okay. not our separate from ours. Okay, a News Corp alum, hello Rupert Murdoch, uh, joins mm. named Vicky Campion, who is now 33, I believe. Again, Barnaby's 52, so a little, yeah, a little younger. Mm-hmm. Natalie, I think, is 49 right now. Yeah. So Vicky Campion, it's like the stories write themselves. Vicky Campion comes on board to assist the race. And then when he's reelected, joins his staff. Great. Early 2017, they're seen out on the town together, having drinks and stuff. And apparently just a friend. Yeah. Apparently in private, Natalie confronts her. Really? So Vicky then leaves Barnaby's staff. It seems like stuff was too hot. So, you know, to work for another minister, but. It is the year 2017, and the eligibility crisis is underway. Oh. And so this new minister, who's a close friend of Barnaby, is forced out. So Vicky is then out of a job. So, like, she pops back into Barnaby's office for a while and then, like, ends up as the social media advisor for another parliamentarian, but does hardly any social media work for him. It's and not shady at all. earns six figures. Yeah. Perfect. It's great. So it's good. it's good work if you can get it. <laughs> So then we come to the fall of 2017. Okay. When Barnaby is forced out. Sure. Because he's dual citizen of New Zealand. This is so crazy. So anyway, Vicky takes stress leave. She's just 
from her stressful job that she doesn't do as a social media manager. Yes. Perfect. When Barnaby wins his by-election in December of 2017, he comes back to the House. He is deputy prime minister again. Like, nothing changed. They are debating gay marriage, though. Australia did this mail-in plebiscite earlier in the year, and the, the public overwhelmingly supported legalizing gay marriage. So they're working on changing the law. He's against it. Of course he is. Of course he is. And well, because he, it's a threat to his daughters, <laughs> Stacy. Yes, that's it. Uh, he says, the current definition of marriage has stood the test of time. Half of them fail. I acknowledge that. And then he says, I'll acknowledge that I'm currently separated. So that's on the record. <laughs> he tells them that he has not come to this debate pretending to be a saint. Uh, clearly not. Like, this is, it's so, dear family values nuts. Like, your adultery is what's killing marriage. It's not, it's not that gay people can get married. It is your fucking around on your family. In his defense, slightly. <laughs> okay. Though he had opposed gay marriage throughout his career, he, I guess, had made a statement that if if they did the mail-in plebiscite and the public was for it, that he would not vote against it. And so he did not vote. Wouldn't vote for it. Wouldn't vote for it. Just wouldn't vote against didn't, it. Yeah, he did not vote as far as okay. I can tell. So well, a... I thought that was I thought that was sort of reasonable. A bite of a cookie. Because I think his, his constituents voted for it. Like, he... Okay. Yeah, his rural constituents were like, "Yeah, dude, gay people can get married. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. There's <laughs> no no impact on your me. Your daughters are going to be okay. I don't know what's wrong with you, but yeah. Okay, so in February of 2018, oh, the tabloid The Daily Telegraph, Murdoch tabloid, I think, published a cover photo of a very pregnant Vicky <sighs> the mistress. The headline was Bundle of Joyce. Oh, <laughs> thrilled me. Uh, this was a big scandal in Australia because oh, I, I think their libel laws are similar to the UK. Ooh. And, you know, you, like you really have to be able mm-hmm. to prove it if you're going to say it, which tells you how out in the open all of this really was in the Canberra set. And in fact, like the next day, Barnaby admitted that they were partners now. They were living together, apparently for free in a supporter's home oh, there was right. a lot of there was a lot of grift grifters gonna grift yeah i i don't think anything ever came of it though i don't i don't think you know he's apparently moving his mistress through various legislators offices in paid roles that she may or may not be qualified for he's like all this stuff free housing like i don't think anything came of it so barnaby did seem to stumble a bit when he mentioned that he wasn't a hundred percent sure it was his kid though you know, well, they're partners, they're living together, he's in love, he's going to raise that baby like his own. So my girlfriend is sleeping around on me? I mean, that that's quite an implication for the mother of your child. Yeah, he said that they'd been apart a lot during the conception window. <laughs> so paternity was, and I quote, a gray area. So oh, absolutely, he was saying, I love her, I love our baby. But as soon as I turn my back, she's just getting it on. Like, what a dick. Wow. This guy is just cool guy. And now Barnaby and Vicky are expecting their second child, by oh, the way. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Little Sebastian uh, is... Uh, on his way. Noah is already born. Oh. That's the, that's the baby. Awesome. Who's, yes, that was the bundle of joys. 
Those are some permanent <laughs> reminders of some temporary feelings. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so there were professional ramifications for Barnaby Joyce, but not as serious as you'd think. He had to resign as deputy PM. He's no longer leader of the National Party in the House. He's no longer ag minister. Like, he had to get rid of all... He's just a backbencher now. Okay. But he didn't have to resign his seat. And there's an election coming up in, like, two weeks in Australia. And he's, he's running for again? So, yeah, despite all of this, he is strongly favored to... Uh, to he's coming back. And it's widely expected that once he's back in the House that he's going to make a play to become leader again and deputy prime minister. Unreal. So, you know, best of luck to his constituents. Um, maybe Amazon can bring you bottled water. What is Natalie doing? Ha <laughs> ha. You know what? One last thing, because this, this actually plays into how many okay. trash cans he gets. In the summer of 2018... This piece of garbage who has abandoned his wife of 24 years and his four daughters who are old enough to know what's going on takes 150 grand to do a TV interview with his girlfriend and a <sighs> baby talking about how happy they are. Can Australian politicians take money for doing interviews? Apparently. That's weird. Maybe Vicky took the money? I don't know. That's a good question. Huh. There was a payment of 150 grand though. And it's wow. like the money was set aside for the baby. So I, okay. Huh. I mean, that's what they say anyway. I don't know. I bet nobody's checking that. Grifter's going to grift. Yeah. Okay. So Natalie, his wife, they are not yet divorced as far as I can tell, but I'm not also not sure how private the Australian system is when it comes to divorce. Right. She said she felt like throwing a brick through the screen when it aired. Yeah, and I'm think? sure his daughters did too. The daughters apparently have not met the baby yet. So... This dude set his family on fire. Like, he's just a piece of trash. But what is Natalie up to these days? Mm, Little Natalie, who we hope gave her daughter's Gardasil. Right. (laughs) Here's the greatest and most fascinating thing about this whole episode. Tell me. I'm I'm ready for something good. Natalie Joyce, Barnaby's estranged wife of 24 years, got a gym membership after he left. Sometimes you do that. Sometimes you do. Hit the gym. Hit the gym. (sighs) hard and in april like last month she stepped onto the stage to compete in her first professional bodybuilding competition oh my god that's amazing where she came in fourth and she meddled in the first timers and the miss fitness model mama categories oh my god and it's pretty clear that if she needs to kill barnaby joyce with her bare hands she, she is, is more than capable wow so that i am crossing off bodybuilding on the trashy divorces bingo card that's amazing good for her good for her man it this whole thing sucks but it was such a trashy story and we're so thankful for kelly uh, to send it in and and suggest wow trash bag i guess there's no risk corrupt politician and lady bodybuilder yeah that mix has never happened before right I guess there's no risk that he will ever be prime minister of Australia, but if I'm wrong in that, I hope Australians will let me know. Like, he would have to change parties, I think. God save our soul. Let's hope not. What a nightmare, yeah. Yeah, that was a, that was so, a good story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. What cost? How much does it cost to set your wife and family on fire? It's good. It's a good question. Just, I'd like to know that that amount, man. And then take 150 grand to tell the entire country how happy you are now that you've ditched them. Like, go fuck yourself, you piece of shit. 
And that's Barnaby Joyce. 100%. Family, Family Values Crusader. I'm going to be curious about trash can ratings when uh, we get to the end. You ready to take a break? Let's take a break. Let's do it. Hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Who do you have for us this week in the candy of trash? So if y'all are familiar with a wonderful podcast called Slow Burn, you may have heard of Martha Mitchell. Slow Burn is a podcast, excellent stuff, highly recommend. Their season one is all about Watergate. Martha Mitchell was featured on their very first episode of season one and sort of detailed her story as a bell ringer of Watergate. She was telling us very loudly and forcefully in whatever way she could that there was some shit going down. I'm not telling you the story of Watergate today. Well, yeah, a, no. Slow Burn covers that very, very well. It's a Slate podcast. They have good stuff. Big research Not going to tell you the story of Watergate today. You know we use a super specific lens for this podcast, the trashy divorce of it all. So today, I am bringing you the trashy, trashy divorce of John and Martha Mitchell, a wife who went down swinging for her husband, who didn't give a damn about her, Went down swinging for her country because some things, the real things, are bigger than party. There are two distinct timelines in the story. Okay. The first one is before June 17th, 1972. That's the breaking point. The other timeline is after. Okay. There was a date that everything came before and a date that everything came after. Let's start with the first timeline. Okay. Yeah, that seems good. (laughs) Pre-June, 1972. Sure. John Mitchell was born in 1913. Grows up in Queensboro, Queensboro of New York City. He gets his law degree from Fordham. He's admitted to the New York Bar in 1938. John does serve for three years in World War II as a naval officer where he's a PT boat commander. John does get married to a lovely gal named Betty. Has two kids, boy and girl. Living the dream. Sure, sure. Except for his three years at war, he practices law in New York City from 1938 to 1969 earning a reputation as a successful municipal bond lawyer. Oh, also, he's the lawyer for Nelson Rockefeller. Hmm. So, yeah, circles of influence. I'm going to leave John here until the mid-50s. It's probably as much as you need to know about him for now. High-powered attorney, war hero, husband, father. Martha was Mm -hmm. born in 1918 in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. So she's like five years Five years younger. younger. Okay. To a genteel family, lots of generations of plantation owners. So... How does she, she get from Pine Bluff, Arkansas to Watergate? Funnily enough. I know you're about to tell me that story. No, I am. There was one quote, and I didn't add it in, but I'm glad that I know it now, where she's like, if I'd, 
had never left the South, I would have been fine. There's your little foreshadowing. Had I never left the South, I would have been fine. I mean. Which normally people leave the South to anyway, different thing. Yeah. So, yeah. She's sort of got this legacy of the South. She's pretty. She's bright. She's happy-go-lucky. She's high-strung. She is also super stubborn. So a good example of this, she resists all her family and teachers' efforts to break her of her left-handedness. Her mom and her grandma were both also left-handed, and they were broken. They think it's a flaw. She may have also been dyslexic, but she talks in quotes, and she's very she's very verbal, which is sort of an interesting thing. Her mom is an elocution teacher. Mom's also pretty busy with her civic duties. She is also heavily involved with the Daughters of the American Revolution. That's better than the Emily Daughters Gilmore. Of, better than Daughters of the Confederacy, though. So yeah, you Daughters know. of the American Revolution. Props the for DAR. Props for being on the right side, I guess. <laughs> well, well, different wars. No, not you know what? Not at all. Co- yeah. Okay. So maybe a little bit unusually for that time, Mom is not home so much. Martha does adore her daddy. He is a cotton and stock merchant. Like, he is the most affluent man in town. From him, she inherits the love of a lot of things. Gambling, cards, dressing well, speaking her mind, smoking heavily, and cocktails. All right. One of her teachers remembers that Martha had a good mind when she used it, but she never used it. (laughs) She was a pretty happy, empty-headed little girl. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, I mean, happy. Good mind when she used it. Here's the, I think you're going to find that, oh, it's such a good story. So when Martha is 11, a fire burns the family home, and they move into an apartment, which sort of coincides with the Great Depression. Okay. Mom is working a lot more. Dad loses his job, and in just a fuck-all move, takes takes off. He's gone. Gone. This will be the first time in her life that she considers a man dead to her, but it will not be the last. So, I mean, you're – so, like, the Depression hit, his finances were decimated, and he just – Split, Splitsville. Flipped out and left. Mm-hmm. Okay. Splitsville. Which I think happened a lot, unfortunately. He's dead to her. She does continue on through high school. High school classmate says of her, she always had something to say. She just enjoyed herself. She had fun. Whatever she was doing, she just had fun. Martha did graduate from Pine Bluff High School in 1937 and inscribed by her picture in the Zebra Yearbook. This is such a good quote. I love its gentle warble. I love its gentle flow. I love to wind my tongue up. I love to let it go. Okay, that's I funny. love her. So she, she's the ultimate chatty Cathy, basically? Pretty much. Okay. She wants to be an actress, so she goes oh, nice. to Stevens College. Oh, okay. And after about a year, hops off on a tour with an acting company. Her mother oh, is <laughs> horrified <laughs> because good girls don't do that. She ran away to join the circus. I mean, what, why would mom? Why would mom mind? <laughs> well, mom yanks her ass back out of the acting circus okay. and transfers to University of Arkansas. She pledges Chi Omega. Okay, has a lot of fun. A sorority sister and one of her roommates uh, notes that Martha loved to dress up. She really liked to talk too. She chattered, but not in a catty way. Oh, that okay. She's just she's a lot of fun to be around. Just chatty, extroverted. Okay. She transfers the following year. Uh huh. From University of Arkansas, because of allergies, don't know, Um, to the University of Miami. I'm not making any speculation. Story's long enough. (laughs) She has a lot of fun down in Miami, where she also dates Al Capone's son, Sonny. So lots of clever naming schemas there. Martha graduates in February of 1942. 
with a major in history and a minor in education, average grades. She goes to teach seventh grade in Mobile, Alabama for Yikes. a year. We know a f- former middle school teacher from Mobile, too. There you go. Uh, Recalls succinctly, I despised it. <laughs> Good for her. She eventually <laughs> returns home to Pine Bluff. Maybe because of a family tragedy. I can't. I can connect this, but not. So remember your dead to me dad mm-hmm. who absconded? Mm-hmm. As an adult in press, she claims he died before she could remember him. But in fact, he shot himself Ooh. in October of 1943 when Martha was 25. Sheesh. And she's with him when he dies two days later. So oh. she graduates February 42, teaches for a year. Like it kind of fits that she's back Anyway, back yeah. in Pine Bluff, Yikes. she gets a job as a receptionist at the Pine Bluff Arsenal. And when her commanding officer is transferred to Washington, D.C., she goes too. Like romantically? Like she she was... No, it's a job. Oh, oh. When she... her commanding officer is transferred, she's the, his personal his secretary. Person. That's She goes to Washington with him. Okay, that's very cool. That's um, how she gets to Washington. Because, yeah, like women of that era, I think, frequently did not move with their jobs. <laughs> like, that's very cool. Yeah. No, she's a She's Martha. special, yeah. So in Washington... Martha meets Army Captain Clyde Jennings, who she marries in 1946. He is an Army Captain turned traveling sportswear salesman. Oh, God. I know. They move to New York City, first living in Queens. They have a son, Jay, born in 1947. They moved to Manhattan. The marriage is kind of rocky. People who knew them in those years said they had little in common. They gradually grew apart. Martha played bridge, collected recipes, and entertained Both she and her husband, according to friends, were politically conservative and were strongly against the 1954 Supreme Court decision ordering school desegregation. I'm sorry. Yep. Sorry. Brown versus Board of Education. They were on the wrong side of that one? On the wrong side. Good. So she is... Good. I'm not making her out to be a hero. Like, this is not... Yeah. She she is a staunch 100%. She's a Southern white lady in Manhattan and uh, holds Southern white lady views. And, you know, desegregation is a bad thing. So sometime before May, the couple divorces in 1957. Sometime before May 1956, Martha begins dating Wall Street lawyer John Mitchell. Hmm. 11 days after John divorces his first wife, Betty, Hmm. he and Martha get married. So now we have a power couple coming together. This is a double Virgo. Mm. Double Earth. September 2nd, September 15th. Buried alive in our buried astrology. Alive. Okay. No lie. Virgo and Virgo compatibility. So when two people under the same sign get involved, it is expected that they will understand each other and agree on a lot of things. In the case of two Virgos, middle ground is non-existent. This couple either gets along perfectly or will constantly bicker to the end. There is not an in-between. When two Virgos, again, get together, they share the same things. They value the same things in love, which is a good starting point. Shared interests are important to both, but when two Virgos are together, it would make a little bit more sense to have different projects and interests as they both tend to run the show. We will not see this play out in the case of John and Martha Mitchell. (laughs) So they had the Mitchells have a lot of money. They spend their evenings with cocktails and talk about his work and the state of the country. 
Friends recall John treating her like a child. He calls her doll or gorgeous. And Martha hates it that she's home alone a lot. Like, he's a busy lawyer. They have a daughter, Martha, who they call Marty in January of 1961. Okay. And Martha keeps herself busy. And this is Martha's second child? Second child. Okay. Jay and, Jay and Marty. So she hosts a lot of parties. And one of these in 1962 is for Richard Nixon, who has joined a Wall Street firm after his failed bid for governor in 1962, which is after his failed bid for president in 1960. The couple in 1964, the Mitchells, move out to Rye, New York. So for most of her life is relatively apolitical as she's been. Southern lady, you know how you kind of feel about things. You're from a family of plants. Like, it's none of it's good. Right. Mitchell really becomes an avid believer in Nixon's abilities. Okay. And by the time Nixon's law firm merges with John's law firm in 67... Martha has turned her husband, a staunch supporter of John F. Kennedy, into a Nixon admirer. Good choice. Cool, cool. John, so taken with it all, then becomes the campaign manager for wow. Nixon's bid for the 68 Republican presidential nomination. Did he have any background in... I mean, now it's a profession. Maybe it wasn't... Maybe at the time it wasn't... And no, you didn't have no. professional campaign managers at the time. No, but... Just true believer. Well, hold on. Hmm. Uh-oh. <laughs> Martha is super excited about this because she thinks she's going to be heavily involved. Like, she's... As you would. She's... On board. Like, she's... She, John, and Richard Nixon were three people. Like, they were the first three founders of this. We're going to do this. She's not allowed... To her... Frustration and anger. Oh. She's virtually excluded because John has found a new love. Mm. His bro dude. Oh, no. Richard Milhouse Nixon. No. Born on January 9th. He is a Capricorn and an Earth sign as well. Virgo and Capricorn, both buried alive when they get together. Right. Are a sweetly matched pair that can become wholly devoted to one another. Neither wants the fly-by-night affair and will instantly pick up on the earthy depth as promising for a long-term relationship. Both need the reassurance of respect. Both find loyalty and enduring love a big draw. These two guys are going to do really, really bad deeds together. And their love affair but ends it, but up... It's a, but it's a bromance made in heaven, basically. Yep. This love affair proves way more meaningful to John and... Like, more meaningful than his wife, more meaningful than his country. This is, it, it gets and, and worse for Martha. To be clear, though, you're not alleging any romantic. No, no, okay. no, no, okay. no, no, they no, just, no, They're just, they're just peas in a pod, bro dudes who are like, hey, let's go, let's go break the country. <laughs> no, I am not in any way implying that they are romantically involved, mm -hmm. but for the sake of the story. Sure. I think the feelings that draw out even though they may not have been physically intimate right they're having an affair sure they're clear clearly this is an emotional affair of some kind mm -hmm. doesn't have to be sexual okay it gets worse for martha okay who thinks she's going to be involved she's not involved john is nixon's campaign manager he's gone all the time and she really hates patricia nixon and pat nixon really hates martha oh that's interesting so she's home alone she drinks she calls john a lot he sends her on the first of her few trips to dry out. 
In oh, November of oh. 1968, Nixon wins. Yes. Woo. <laughs> John has done such a bang-up job as his campaign manager. He gets appointed U.S. Attorney General, highest office in the land, when he, it comes to upholding truth and justice. He, but he'd been like a, a Wall Street lawyer, right? Sure. Like he, so certainly he's qualified to be the U.S. District Attorney oh or the U.S. Attorney General. Great. So protecting big business from people. Great. Big old Dick Nixon reassures Martha, who's already been pushed aside. Martha, we can't do it without you. <laughs> You're going to be an active part of my plans to turn the country around. Mission accepted. She's a believer. She's a staunch conservative, tried and true. A hundred percent. Mitchell's move in to the Watergate East in a swanky little three bedroom apartment. I've, I've heard of the place. Yeah. They live at the Watergate. I've heard of the place. <laughs> so here's a little bit about their three-bedroom apartment at the Watergate East. It has an equally formal look. It's a house and garden look without a single masculine touch. The Mitchells live there with nine-year-old Marty and the family poodle Buttons. Huh? Buttons. Buttons. Martha has in her bathroom a pale blue telephone. Oh, in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. In John's study, these are just some things i picked up which i think are hilarious in john's study there's a pale blue pillow with the inscription you can always tell a republican but you can't tell him much (laughs) (laughs) it just made me laugh so they're protestant they send their daughter martha marty to an exclusive school run by catholic nuns because martha says there has been no discipline of children in the last 20 years today the roman catholics are the only ones that have discipline (sighs) That uh, I I hope she was okay there because Martha (laughs) emerges overnight. Moving on. Martha emerges overnight as the most colorful of the Nixon cabinet spouses. She's a flamboyant blonde, sling back pumps, dangly earrings. Like she is glitter. And she really does try to find purposeful ways to get the wives of the cabinet involved. She runs a lot of conferences for them to learn about stuff so they can support their husbands. Interesting. She does some charity functions, some embassy functions. She's sort of den mom to the cabinet wives. She's killing it in D.C. Mitchells are on top of the world. But again, let's back up and not make anybody a hero here. Because Martha thinks of government property and services like her own. She flies on Air Force One, lounges at Camp David. Sure. Goes on the presidential yacht. Here's your pub trivia question. We have a present. Apparently we did called the Sequoia. Wow. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you know what happened to it? No, I, there's enough rabbit holes in this. No true story. Yeah. But, <laughs> but still a presidential yacht, presidential yacht called the Sequoia hangs out at the house in Key Biscayne. Mrs. Mitchell grants an interview to time magazine around this time where she complains. The move to Washington is a financial come down. Mr. Mitchell made $250,000 a year in Manhattan. His cabinet salary is 60000 So here's her quote. I think the government should give us free housing, indicating her displeasure at paying $140,000 for their duplex Washington apartment. We'll be happy to go back and make some money. Now, lots packed in there. Can you imagine getting a three-bedroom apartment in D.C. In DC. for $140,000? thousand dollars uh no no. okay not not today or in atlanta 1970 i mean no anyway 
All um, right, hold on. Still no hero. Dang. That interview also contained these delightful comments. Well, but she's all she's all like socialism for me and capitalism for thee, right? She's like, let me give me give me all the correct. Hold on, no, you're gonna all love the free these. air trips and all the interview also contains this little comment. Anytime you get somebody marching in the streets, it's catering to revolution. That started with the colored people in the South. Now other groups are taking to the streets. We could have worked out the integration battle without allowing them to march. My family worked for everything we had. We even have a deed from the King of England for property in South Carolina, where my mother came from. Now these jerks come along and try to give it to the communists. This sounds eerily familiar. This sounds like a type of Republican. It is. We know for sure. But I mean, the idea that her... Wealthy South Carolina-based family worked for. Like we, I don't, I don't want to know turn... who's doing the planting, and it is. Not she's us. going to like trauma leads to transformation, and she's going to have one, which to me is the heart yeah. and soul of the story. But let's not turn her right, or John right. Mitchell into any kind of grifter's going to grift. Right. Nixon. Well, and the the blindness, you know, of, of your own. That's. Okay. So Nixon. For the first time in history, gives the Mitchell family round-the-clock security. Nixon says they need it because he's going to be going after the mob, and John Mitchell is U.S. Attorney General, or, yeah, like, is going to need. Sure. So, taxpayers freak the hell out. Like, we get alarmed at the shit show that Uh, is today. Yeah. But what is past is prologue. Like, the guys running this shit show today learned it from this shit show. It, okay. It's true. Taxpayers are pissed. Like, this is how quick you've never... I've, I didn't know this story. Taxpayers are mad because Martha apparently abuses the service by having FBI agents help her shop, oh, God. carry her luggage. She's got a chauffeur and government car 24 hours a day. Oh, my God. Okay. So Martha later says that Nixon, like, sees the press as an enemy. And in keeping with Nixon's advice, she keeps her distance. Like, but Martha has the need to know. She is a trash candy sister. So she listens in on phone calls between John and the president. Wow. If John's got people over, she will sneak down and listen halfway on the stairs. Like, she'll eavesdrop at the door. Like, I imagine the Weasley kids with their little ear runner. But, like, she'll listen from the door, and if she gets caught, she'll, oh, sorry, John. She drinks a lot, right? Yeah. Just tumbles back up the stairs and then comes and sits halfway down and uses her little invisible ears. I, uh, as a security thing that I, wow, different times. Okay, so as she's doing this Weasley earbud thing, she finds out that her husband is in charge of a slush fund used being used to pay for all of these dirty deeds that are happening, which are pretty bad. So she remains quiet about what she knows and, again, is convinced that it's necessary for the government to deceive people in order to save the country. I think I'm being a patriot. It is necessary for us to go through these measures in order to save the country from itself. Yeah, this is I power, mean, this is power unadulterated. Well, no, but I mean, I, I mean, I grew up in a in an army household, and I mean, yeah, there's, uh, like, I I understand where that 
thought comes from. Like my dad worked on classified projects that he yeah. couldn't tell us about. Sure. So there is is that element Nixon. Yeah. I think inarguably took it a little further than one should. So John and Martha do appear to be devoted to one another. Martha says she does have thin skin and she finds it hard to take the criticism of my husband, my poor husband. A Justice Department staff member agrees. She's not used to being a political wife. She takes any criticism of Mitchell as criticism of her. She takes his defeats as her defeats. She hasn't learned yet, like other political wives, that politics is an impersonal affair. I'm just going to spin off here. This to me is heartbreaking because I do think that people, indeed, it is an impersonal affair to them. There's nothing more personal to me than politics. Nothing. It is it is the most personal thing that you can have about you because it defines your entire view of your morality. How do you feel about what you should do about? It's a mm, just impersonal affair. That just that I think made my heart so mad. Yeah, I think for for politicians and like the the people who work in our policy making and the bureaucracy, though it's business, right? And like. It's not weird to hear someone say it's just business, meaning it's not personal. Although usually when they're saying it's just it's business, personal. it's it's still personal. Yeah. <laughs> so when asked about his wife's outburst, John says, what else can I do but let her speak? She has no inclination to be quiet. She's not politically motivated. She's just saying what she feels. Nobody around here in the administration tries to throttle her. So like in D.C., she's kind of getting talked about a little bit. Like, guess what Martha did today? Nobody ever asks Martha, Martha who. who. <laughs> That's so, funny. <laughs> most of what is happening about her is kind of stuck in the women's pages. There used to be just women's pages that yeah. ladies are floofy ladies and can't right. read the real they paper. want the front page. Of- ah, anyway, I mean, Internet's not a thing, right? Like, you do have the three news programs that come on at night and newspapers. So Martha kind of manages to be the den mom and do some things and stay undercover until November 21st, 1969, six days after the gigantic anti-Vietnam march on the Capitol. She goes on an interview on CBS Morning News and says her husband compared the demonstration before the Justice Department to the Russian Revolution and thought that some American liberals were worse than Russian communists. Dang. So she's making quite a reputation for herself. This is some Her- firebrand shit. Like this. So <laughs> the GOP's just always had this strain. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Her nickname is Martha the Mouth mm-hmm. or Mouth of the South. Mm-hmm. This CBS interview like doesn't make it. She catches a little bit of hell for this, but she's saying what they all think. So right, right. they're not too upset until uh, she's barred from flying on Air Force One. In 1970, when she tells the press pool that the Vietnam War stinks. (laughs) Well, like one of the reporters asked her, like, how do you feel about miniskirts? And she's like, would you ask me a real question, damn it? How do you feel about the war? Vietnam War stinks. Martha says she does not believe in that no comment business. Mm -hmm. She feels like public figures have a responsibility to the nation and... You never should say no comment unless you're really out of any other options. She speaks vehemently and frequently about everything. Desegregation, education, politics, the Supreme Court. She, good Lord, even gets involved in this. Try to uh, 
that's a trashy tidbit. Anyway, <laughs> um, she advocated wage and price and rent controls when the Nixon administration is getting is set against them. Some of these commentaries come in late night phone calls to reporters after she's been hitting the scotch. She drinks. Sourceful little drunk I mean, Tyler. I, yes. <laughs> Love her. So she becomes the most talked about, despised, and admired cabinet wife in U.S. history. She has name recognition with 76% of the American public. 76%. Okay, like I can clearly picture Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin's yeah. blonde supervillain wife, but I, I can't think of her, her name. name. Yeah. yeah. I'd have to look the that up. The one who eats money? Yes. Yeah. The one who eats money and, and probably nothing else. Martha gets called an enfant terrible, a heroine, a scatterbrain, a loudmouth. American hairdressers vote her worst trust. She's got this big blonde. <gasps> Dude, she's fantastic. All right. <laughs> Middle America and the silent majority loves her because she's publicly saying the things that they talk about privately. Young people, even though they don't really agree with her ideas, are like, hey, that's one ballsy lady. Like, she calls it out and says it. Some Republicans, right? This is the, this is your deep state. Think that she might be an anti-establishment plot by the press designed to make the Nixon administration look bad. Oh, my God. Jeez. Oh, my like, God. Like, she's getting 400 pieces of mail a day. And like any good Chi Omega, she's a sorority girl. She insists on answering them all. Seriously? Mm -hmm. Wow. So having discovered publicity and liking it, <laughs> she maybe changes her mind about this whole the press is my enemy sure, thing. enemy of the people. <laughs> right. And uh, like it said, one commentator notes, the press wrote about Martha because she couldn't be ignored. She was good copy. She does try to get, invol get involved with the Supreme Court decision. And it backfires on her, but wait, she... wait, like a picking a Supreme Court Correct. justice. Oh, Jesus! Correct. We're going to talk about it on a trashy. Like, I was like, wait, is she trying to get the Supreme Court to rule a certain way? <laughs> it's not okay. I mean, I wouldn't put it past her, but she wants her husband's pick to be the one and the one who doesn't, the senator who's not approved. Like, she makes a tyranny of late night drunken phone calls, and it's bad. Anyway, she Martha ends up on laughing. With Lily Tomlin's Ernestine character oh with the God. telephone booth. Right. Or calling Martha Mitchell about interfering with the... Anyway, she drunk dials the press. Like, she gets a lot of flack. In December 1971, a Wire story runs about Vice President Spiro Agnew's gag gift, Christmas List. So I guess the White House wants to be human or funny like, yeah, or something. Yeah, the lighter side of the Nixon White House. So on the Vice President's gift list his gag gift list for martha mitchell a brand new princess telephone for john mitchell a padlock for a brand new princess <laughs> telephone it's pretty good <laughs> so for the most part her husband offers no objection nixon at one time says give him hell martha by 1970 knows about the dirty trick she knows about the slush fund she is sort of resenting her husband's devotion to the job she believes that part of his status in the world, like he rose on her and how are you? I don't know. Like she's, she's having a lot of reservations. This is pre-feminist revolution, right? So she's having some mixed feelings. John wants to take care of her, but she also wants some recognition for her dedication and effort because everything he's doing 
she's doing too. Right. She feels like she's part of his team. That's exactly it. He is increasingly feeling like he's part of Richard Nixon's team. That's and they are no longer on That's the exactly team. it. So in March of nineteen seventy two, John resigns as attorney general to be the campaign manager oh. for the committee oh. to reelect the president. Oh, I thought you were gonna say to focus on his marriage but no no that's coming in a few months it's coming in a few months no, no he resigns to, to uh, cuddle up with richard Moore. uh be the head of creep uh tricky dick right so by the spring of 1972 martha is keeping up a grueling campaign schedule but she's not listed on the committee's roster she is putting her heart blood soul sweat tears into this and is not getting any recognition she soon becomes suspicious that uh Nixon officials are spying on her and leaving her out on purpose because maybe she's kind of mouthy. While she still publicly supports the campaign, she starts to, quote, annoy the hell out of them the way they were annoying, unquote, her. Nixon and the team start developing the myth now. She's got severe mental and emotional problems. Oh, John's too preoccupied. Like... Whatever. She describes her efforts right now at this point to get her husband out of the campaign. Mr. President was going to be reelected anyway. Like, just go. You don't you don't need to do this. Yeah, this isn't on you. Yeah. But he's still going to do it. And this takes us to June of 1972. And this is your cutoff, right? The timeline the split. T- yeah. Okay. Exactly it. Martha, reluctantly, because Pat Nixon is going. Oh. Martha, Marty, and John end up heading out to California for a fundraising trip. Martha's maybe kind of excited because she's going to get to go to a party uh, with a donor and meet John Wayne and Clint Eastwood. Oh, wow. And one of the muse goddesses of trashy divorces, Zsa Zsa Gabor, (gasps) who has been married nine times with seven divorces and one annulment. Anyway, they're in California early Saturday morning. John Mitchell gets a call at the Newport Beach Hotel room. And gets a phone call, doesn't tell Martha what the phone call is about, but tells Martha, hey, babe, I'm leaving on a jet plane. Got to go handle something in Washington, but don't you worry. You stay here. There's a pool. You just relax and get some rest. So John packs up his bags, leaves Martha there on Saturday morning, tells uh, this nice uh, bodyguard guy named Steve King on the way out, don't leave her alone. Don't let her see a paper. I need you to keep her under 24-hour fucking lockdown. We do not want Martha knowing about what just happened. Okay. Okay. So Martha gets up Saturday morning, like, wandering down, getting coffee at the, sure. you know, hotel coffee sure. machine. Continental breakfast. Notices you know. that a lot of staffers are gone. Everybody who's still there is acting really weird around her. But there's a pool. There's liquor. It's fun. Sure. So that's cool. Sure. Telephones, I'm sure. No. No. Oh. Don't give her access to a phone. Oh. Don't let her. Don't let her. Do oh. put her incommunicado, man. Incommunicado. Okay. Okay. But she doesn't know that these orders have been given. No. Okay. She's just supposed to relax and rest and have some fun. Sip some coffee. So by Monday, she gets her hand on a paper and realizes why John left on Saturday, Which because was... on Friday night, five men were arrested at the Watergate Uh-oh. for trying to break into the Democratic National Headquarters oh, God. with 
bucketfuls of cash and recording equipment. Now, one of those men, James McCord, has been her daughter's bodyguard all spring long. Wow. She knows, like, wow. She knows James McCord. She trusts him. She likes him. And she is like, and she knows he's not going to just go rob the. DNC for some reason. Yeah, there's what is, I don't know what's going on, but something is going on. And now you guys are really keeping me under lock and key. And I, so like Monday through Thursday, kind of play in this um, battle of Martha trying to get more intel and reach out to the outside world and not being able to. Right. But something's up and Martha's going to find out. So by Thursday, I mean, she's continuing to call her husband. John, what the hell? What is going on? Sure. By Thursday, she calls John again. He will not answer. His aide is like, John is not available right now. She's like, you know what? Then you can tell John that I'm about to do something about this. So she, later that night, pretends to be asleep. So I guess Steve King, like, chilling out, smoking a cigarette, taking a break. Martha sneaks off, finds a phone. And let's also mention she's medicated by scotch and painkillers because she's burned herself lighting a cigarette earlier. Hmm. And she calls everyone's favorite reporter from UPI, Helen Thomas. Oh, wow. Okay. So I'm going to let Helen Thomas tell you what happened. Sure. Doug and I were at home just finishing dinner when the phone rang. It was Martha. She sounded calm, sad, and uncharacteristically subdued, which is because she's trying to be quiet. So for like, I read that originally until I realized that she snuck off to do it. Right. So it's weird. I'm talking quiet on that. That doesn't happen. So back to Helen. We chatted for a little while and I asked her about Watergate. That's it. She said, I've given John a ultra tomato, an <sighs> ultimatum. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. Um, I've given John an ultimatum. I'm going to leave him unless he gets out of the campaign. I'm sick and tired of politics. Politics is a dirty business. Then suddenly, Her voice became more agitated, and she yelled, you get away, just get away, and the line went dead. Wow. I tried to call back several times without success. Yeah, that's harrowing. And then called the switchboard operator. I was told that Mrs. Mitchell is indisposed and cannot talk. Oh, geez. I then called John Mitchell. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, good. Who had returned to Washington. Good, Smart move. Told him what happened during my conversation. Yeah, your wife is being attacked in California. And then I was a little concerned. He sounded rather blasé. And tried to ease my fears. That little sweetheart, I love her so much. She gets a little upset about politics, but she loves me and I love her and that's what counts. I'll tell you a secret. I've promised Martha I'll give up politics after this campaign. So he is not... Not at all. Upon learning Mm -hmm. that his wife has potentially been... No, because he knows. He's given the command. that's pretty clearly, but... Because let, let me tell you what just happened. Okay. Just get away, just get away. Steve King comes in, yanks the phone cord out of the wall, kicks her. She tries to escape out the balcony, smashes her hand through a plate glass window and trying to escape. She's going to need six or 11 stitches. I've read both. This shit show gets so out of control. They call, hold on, hold on, um, Herb Kambach, Nixon's personal lawyer, to come to the hotel to do damage control. Herb Kambach calls a doctor to stitch Martha's hand up, and Martha's yelling. She's a political prisoner. She's being held against her will. Sounds like. This is 
Yeah. It was incredible. The doctor comes in with five other men, including Steve King, and they all hold her down, remove her pants, and tranquilize her rear end. Holy shit. Yeah. I, my, I, I, right. my jaw is hanging. I, it's right. Oh my God. She's, I mean, essentially she's been kidnapped for almost a week. She finally this, gets to a phone, yeah. makes contact and then is now she's officially. So false imprisonment. Like there, there are all, this is all kinds of criminal activity. Okay. But things go okay for Steve King, the agent who detained who and kicked her. Assaulted her. Yes. And kidnapped her. And... He went on to have quite an illustrious career in chemical manufacturing. He was the RNC chair for Wisconsin he also, right now, is currently serving as our current ambassador to the Czech Republic in the Trump administration. He could not be reached for comment. We actually did not reach out for comment. I don't care. Uh, Things don't go great for Martha. So so what you're telling me is that no one ever prosecuted Steve King for kidnapping Martha Mitchell. No. And assaulting Martha Mitchell no. and holding her against her will for... Nope. Wow. Nope. Wow. Well, this is dark. So this things don't go as great for Martha as they do I for Steve King. Realized. So once she gets done under being doctor's care with the stitches, she's put on a private plane, flown back east, where they're, ta- they're hiding her out at the Westchester Country Club in Rye, New York. She gives her husband an ultimatum right now. You resign or I'm leaving you. Martha is pissed. She tells John, like, you are getting set up to be the scapegoat here. Dude is using you. I can't believe you're going to go down for that rap bastard. Like, this is the wife that her success is tied to. Like, she, you need to get away from this. These are just lies. And just be done with it. Two weeks after the Watergate break-in, John Mitchell does resign. July 1st. It, two weeks to the day. Interesting. Two weeks. He's out. I don't know if he said he resigned to spend more time with his wife and daughter. Okay. I don't know if she managed to convince him or to aid in the Watergate cover-up, which they are really, right, 1972, it's an election year. The Republican National Convention is happening a month from now in Miami. Like They're wanting to keep, tamper it down. Right. Nothing's going to break our stride to win this election. Right. So... Martha has a uniform nurse. She is a virtual prisoner. She's not going anywhere. Republican convention happens in the fall of 72. John and Martha move back to New York City, get a Fifth Avenue apartment. Mitchell is still staying undercover. Now the administration, in what does happen, they're starting to discredit her to try to silence her. Right. Like Nixon is running... (laughs) a campaign about the end of the war and look at all this we're doing with China. And I know I've been shit for three years, but certainly, I mean, this is the narrative there. Like this is the day Nixon became presidential. It's, it's, It's so much repetition. So he's trying to clean up his rep. This is the day he became presidential. Anyway, they keep undercover. Nixon does win reelection. He won in a landslide. Oddly enough, the Mitchells were not asked to be at the inauguration events in 1973. (laughs) Really? Mm -hmm. So let's move it on up to March of 1973. The five Watergate 
burglars mm-hmm. have been sentenced now. And James McCord, right. the burglar who is getting 25 years, yikes, sends a letter to the judge. He's convicted on eight counts of conspiracy, burglary, and wiretapping. He sends a letter to the judge and says that his plea and testimony was perjured. It was compelled by the pressure of the White House, specifically White House counsel John Dean and Attorney General John Mitchell. This letter implicates several senior individuals in Nixon's administration. McCord flips and becomes a cooperating witness, gets released for time served. This letter is what sort of turns and breaks the Watergate case wide open. So imagine you're Martha Mitchell. Right. In March of 73. This guy, James McCord, that you really know and like and trust. Mm Mm-hmm. He's been in your home. He's protected your kid. Yeah, you trusted your kid. Yeah. Has now flipped. Has now said, yes, I sold my soul to the devil and I was compromised. And here's what I know. And how can I help you? So, like, remember that's happened. I think Mm -hmm. that's a key component in this. Yeah. In May of 73, Martha ends up providing a a deposition in connection with the Democrats $6.4 million civil lawsuit against Creep, the Committee to Reelect the President. Sure. She testifies about two hours while sipping three Coca-Colas, tells 11 assembled lawyers for Democrats and Republicans that the White House leaked false stories, suggesting she was in an insane asylum. Pat Nixon uses a news conference to announce that Martha is very, very ill. Oh, yikes. May of 73 is also the month that Martha Mitchell called for Nixon's resignation. This is she well before anybody else did. Okay. July of 73. Martha's at a friend's house in Mississippi watching John's testimony before the Senate committee. And she's angry and drinking. Things aren't good. Because John is testifying. Right. John is lying. John is selling his soul out to bro dude Nixon. She comes back to New York City. White House cuts off John. And Martha's even more angry. And she wants to clear his name. They are living together right now in New York, but they're hardly speaking. The mood is really, really bitter. John, she says, is a broken recluse. She can't get through to him. She, Martha tells him, you have to choose between your family or the president. Save yourself. Like, enter a plea bargain in this and save your... She decides to leave him because she thinks he's going to jail. She knows he's going to jail. Yeah, well, and it sounds like he's put himself in that position. So through this time, she really does. She loses all respect for him. You're a fool to go to prison for Nixon. This is is such a good quote. I continue to reflect on the past. I forage for the answer. How could a weak, insecure man, a conglomerate of nothing, manipulate and overpower a strong and confident person like John Mitchell? Hmm. It's an enduring question uh, I, in American politics. Like, it, how much does your soul cost? How much do, like, Barnaby Joyce, how much does your family cost? At what price do you go ahead and throw away the real things, the things that should be something a weak, insecure man, a conglomerate of nothing. Martha would tell visitors this summer uh, that four years ago we had everything and now we have nothing. In September of 1973, John says, you know, hey, babe, I'm going out for smokes. (laughs) 
never returns to the apartment or sees Martha Mitchell again. He leaves and never comes back. Pulls a Henry VIII. I'm out of here. Wow. Okay, so... Oh, my God. I'm out. Okay. I'm out. There's apparently an incident of throwing clothes out the window. Like, this is a hot press, like, high-power couple. Sure. For the second time in her life, now John is dead to her, too. Sure. She erases him. And the thing that, as an artist myself, I really love, Martha literally does erase him. There's an oil portrait of him in their apartment, and she... Smears it with turpentine, Clorox, mayonnaise, and ketchup hmm. to erase him yeah. out of the yeah. no respect done. I don't know why, you know, you don't see that you're totally getting used. She is alone. She is angry AF. And now there's no holds barred. Martha unleashed. She rails against Nixon. She rails against her husband. She spends the rest of 73 and 74 being on the opposite side derided as a loud mouth and paranoid and she's a drunk and let's mention the month after john pulls his henry the eighth and skips out is the saturday night massacre oh of the firing the firing the firing of okay she files a separation suit she ends up really going off the rails she's got memos from administration like she's got right. paperwork right and she's still resourceful little drunk dialer calling republican senators and other people in the gop like nixon is about to fuck y'all over get on board seen as crazy seen as crazy john mitchell is on trial in new york city in march of 74 for watergate crimes uh alleged influence peddling okay martha repeats her contention that john had been framed And that someday she may write a book. Oh. (laughs) She's not discussing any of this, but apparently the unwritten, untitled book pricing has reached about a million dollars. Oh. The book that'll never be written. What is this lady's name? Hold on one second. She has a sorority sister of hers, a friend, Mrs. McClendon, who ends up writing her biography. Like the same lady that's around. So, I, I mean, it was definitely in the works. Anyway, August of 1974, Nixon does resign the presidency. And the world celebrates. When Nixon resigns, her rep does improve a little bit. She hosts some talk shows. She gets a New York magazine cover. She's getting a little bit of redemption sure. publicly. Because they're like, oh, yeah, you were right. Yeah, she was sort of the Cassandra of... That's it. it all for a while. Yeah. That's it. So like, okay, things are going a little better for me. She's preparing to write her memoirs and contract negotiations. And in October of 75, she is diagnosed with advanced stage multiple myeloma, an incurable blood disease, and spins. It's a form of cancer, right? Correct. Yeah. Diagnosed with incurable cancer and in and out of the hospital. I don't think probably they're going to approve of her heavy alcohol plan. So she's she's there. She gets a little better. She goes home, gets a little worse. She's broken a lot of bones. She's falling down a lot. Right. But she moves back to her abandoned apartment. Uh, John has cut the electricity off. He's not paying for anything. In May of 1976, Martha does win a judgment of $36,000 in back alimony from John. Good. Well, the judge making the case said that uh, 
John submitted no proof that his finances were as precarious as he contends. <laughs> this small victory didn't account for much. Martha dies alone in that hospital at the age of 57 on May 31st, 1976. John is called and informed that she is dying and he doesn't even come to see her then. Yikes. So her hometown of Pine Bluff, Arkansas, erects a bust in her honor. And inscribed on the bust, it says, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Which is kind of nice. She's a hero of Pine Bluff. Yeah. Upon her death, letter to the editor of the Arkansas paper, she was kind of a dippy saint, a dizzy yet right-on-the-target woman, to whom freedom and honesty meant more than protocol and appropriate behavior. At her funeral... There appeared an unsigned floral display of white chrysanthemums, which spelled out the phrase, Martha was right. The year after she died, Nixon, in a famous interview with David Frost, comments, If John had been watching that store, Watergate would have never happened. If it Mm. hadn't have been for Martha, fuck that guy. Can we just vicariously give him five trash cans just for the rest of time? Richard Nixon? Yeah. Yes, yes we can. Great. In 1975, John Mitchell was convicted uh, on five counts for the cover-up, including conspiracy, obstruction of justice, and perjury. After sentencing, (laughs) he was actually sentenced to two and a half to eight years. So after sentencing, hearing two and a half to eight, he remarked, could have been worse. They could have sentenced me to spend the rest of my life with Martha Mitchell. Jesus Christ. His sentence was later reduced to one to four years. He ended up serving 19 months at a minimum security institution in Alabama and was freed on parole, citing some health things. They let him go early because he's yeah. a rich white man. Yeah. He began serving his time in prison in 77, out by 79. As of this recording, right now, the second, John Mitchell is the only U.S. Attorney General to be convicted and sent to prison. But I wouldn't place too many bets that that Mm. record's going to hold very long. Yeah. Hmm. So after his release from prison, John Mitchell lives quietly in Georgetown with his longtime companion, Mary Gordine. Relative of the Gores? Oh, yes. Trashy tidbits this week on Patreon is going to be lit. Wow. On November 9th, 1988, John Mitchell dies from a heart attack, collapses from a heart attack in Georgetown. He dies that night. He is buried with full military honors at Arlington National Cemetery based on his World War II naval service and his post of attorney general. Hmm. There is also something just attached because Martha called from from the day the timeline split happened. I'm a political prisoner. I know things. I'm being bugged. I'm being watched. There is such a thing known in the psychological world as the Martha Mitchell effect. In which a psychiatrist mistakenly or willfully identifies a patient's true but extraordinary claims as delusions. Yeah. Named after her. Yeah. So it's uh, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you kind of That's, thing. Yeah. Like, yes, I mean, it sounds like she was a drunk. It sounds like, you know, it sounds like a lot of the the excuses people used to discount what she was saying were accurate, but also what she was saying was accurate. <laughs> Totally accurate. A hundred percent. Yeah. I don't know. This story just gets me. The thing with Martha, like, don't go quietly. Like, I would much rather be thought of as a loudmouth bitch 
than actively participate in my own oppression and my own mistreatment. So I have a lot of respect for her in that way. I did just, at what, at what price is your soul? And now that it affects me personally, now I'm really going to get on board and realize we're all being hoodwinked. Right. You had already gone to sleep last night and in my loop around music thing, Silver Springs by Fleetwood Mac came on. And because I'm finishing writing this story and Stevie Nicks, was it worth it? Was it worth it, baby? I don't want to know. The sound of my voice will haunt you. Mouth of the South. I hope Martha did. I hope she haunted him the rest of his natural life. That trash bag, garbage bag. Should we talk about? Yes. Trash I, can rating. I hate. I. I'm going five. I'm sorry. You held your wife captive for a year. You had her assaulted. You pulled a Henry the Eighth and then didn't bother to give her electricity. Fuck right off, John or, Mitchell. Or go to her hospital as she was dying, or I assume he didn't attend the funeral. Like, Check you later, dude. You're five trash cans. I'm done. That's the mother of your daughter. I, you know, like you. there are certain things that you do. I'm Five sounds good. Yeah. I, I'm good with five. Mm-hmm. Like, again, I don't want to hold anybody up to be a hero. Like, I, I wanted to give an accurate representation sure. of that couple. Sure. But really, like... I, <sighs> A weak, a conglomerate of nothing. That's what, a great phrase. At what what price is your soul? What price is your soul and what price is your morality? Yeah, it turns at out what, it's a lot less than I think people expect it will be. At they, what cost do you throw away it? the things that are true and good and valuable in the world for for nothing? Like not well, for even for power. I mean, for power. There, I'm gonna. And on that note, let me hand it to you. How much did it cost for Barnaby Joyce? So I would have gone with four because hypocritical conservative politician and you know and a, a, okay. a, and a midlife affair like i mean that's so standard who cares but it's that hundred and fifty thousand dollars he took for the tv interview that his family would undoubtedly well it definitely gives him some <laughs> some extra five stank yeah. on his good god yeah, done. five trash Dude, two, two we, there were tears rage two five trash can ratings yeah it's been a good episode. Pretty good episode. Fan Mr. Big Stuff. Who do you think you are? <laughs> I haven't sung in a while. That felt good. <laughs> hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in. As always, y'all are the best. We hope you enjoyed Trashy Divorces. Mm-hmm. We hope that you will keep it trashy. Stay away from jackass political figures. Stay single. Don't marry anybody who wants to get involved in a political administration that's corrupt AF. And keep it trashy. And keep it trashy. Cheers, y'all. Till next week. (laughs) Bye. Bye. (laughs) And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacey and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. 
If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Interested in some trashy divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.